The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. Find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI. Log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good morning. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, California. Streaming online at KUCI.org and podcasting on iTunes. Welcome to Fighting for Love. This show will help you turn conflict into collaboration in all your relationships. I'm Lloyd, the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank, an attorney mediator since 1985. She's a mediator for the Orange County Superior Court Civil Mediation Panel. Mari's a professor of negotiations and conflict management and has been a certified state bar trainer for over 25 years. To learn more about the show and our great guests, please visit conflicthealing.com. Mari, what's your show about this morning? Well, Lloyd, today our show is really timely because it's about the power of incendiary language. How do we deal with it? How do we become aware of it? And just how do we confront it? And I've been just finished reading this amazing book called Words on Fire, The Power of Incendiary Language and How to Confront It. And it's by Elio Fred Garcia. And Elio is spelled H-E-L-I-O. He's a professor, and I'm going to tell you a little bit more about him. But the, the cover of this book is just amazing. It's got the back of um, our president, uh, Mr. Trump. And as we know, tomorrow, November 3rd, is the election day. So this is really important stuff for us to be listening to. Um, and if you have or have not voted, especially, this is the kind of thing you really need to think about. So let me tell you about our author, Fred Garcia. We're going to call him Fred. Um, He is the president of the crisis management firm Logos Consulting Group, and he's an adjunct uh, adjunct faculty professor of New York University and Columbia University. The book before this book, The Agony of Decision, Mental Readiness and Leadership in a Crisis, was named one of the best crisis management books of all time by Book Authority. His prior book, which we're going to have to read these too, uh, The Power of Communication, Skills to Build Trust, Inspire Loyalty, and Lead Effectively. This is something many of our politicians should have read, and I want to read it too. And that was named to the United States a Marine Corps Commandant's Professional Reading List for five consecutive years. He's a senior fellow at the Institute of Corporate Communications at the University at, Communis, um, at Communications University of China, and he is a contract lecturer at the Defense Information School and the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. You can find out more about him on our website at conflicthealing.com, but also at wordsonfire.net. This is for his book, and you find out more about him in this book. So I want to thank you for coming to us all the way from New York this morning. How are you, Fred? I'm doing well, Murray. Thank you. Well, I am. Yeah, I really thought your book was enlightening and so much that we need to talk about. So tell me, why is it that you write this, wrote this book? I know that you were pretty passionate about this. So one of the things I do in my teaching and in my client work and in my research is I study patterns of influence. 
and patterns of how leaders influence followers to do things differently. And most of my work, as you pointed out in my prior books, is about helping leaders get better leaders, become better leaders to do better things in the world. But about five years ago, I noticed a very troubling pattern, and that was then-candidate Trump, now President Trump, was using forms of language that I recognized as the kinds of language that has historically preceded acts of mass violence up to and including genocide. And I began to sound the alarm about that, and as he became president and as he escalated his rhetoric in the run-up to the 2018 uh, uh, midterm elections, I began to worry that someone would be killed in response to his rhetoric. And then sure enough, just about two years ago, the Tree of Life synagogue shooting happened. Mm. And there the shooter was actively using Trump's language as the justification for shooting and killing the 11 people he killed and the dozens that he injured. Mm. And I started writing the book literally the day after Tree of Life figuring that this is now the opportunity to not only raise the alarm, but to show people not only the pattern, but how to confront that pattern to prevent this kind of thing from happening again. Right. And we recently saw that there was an attempt to kidnap um, the, the governor of Michigan after all of the rhetoric that Trump was using, right? And, and, and there, there are two remarkable things about that that I just want to hold up. The first is the armed attempted kidnappers were initially responding to a tweet from the president about how wearing masks is a violation of freedom. And so he tweeted, liberate Michigan, but then it was followed by save our precious Second Amendment. Well, what does the Second Amendment have to do with masks? Right. Right. That was clearly an invitation to violence, and it turns out... Those people who responded to the tweet who, who, who invaded the Michigan Capitol in April with semi-automatic weapons were the same people who attempted to kidnap the governor using the same justification. Now, keep in mind, it wasn't just kidnap. They were going to put her on a show trial and they were going to execute her. Right, right. And, and the FBI thankfully disrupted that. But when the FBI disrupted that attempt, the president attacked the governor. Yes. Not the kidnapper. Right, right. And, and, and that is just part of the pattern. And, and, and it, as, as you know, in the book, I identify 12 different forms of communication that have historically preceded acts of genocide and acts of terrorism and acts of political assassination. And, and the demonization of a rival or critic is one of those 12, and that is precisely what the president did with Governor Granholm. Right. And uh, how about what happened in Portland, right? What's the relationship between his language and the violence in Portland? One of the things that the president does, which is right out of the playbook for those who use this kind of language in ways to provoke violence, is he invents an exaggerated crisis that requires an armed response. And he has done that historically throughout his campaign and his presidency. Initially, it was Mexicans or rapists, and then it was Muslims want to kill Americans, right. as if Americans and Muslims are different categories of people. 
and then it was uh, the the invasion of the caravan, the invasion of the caravan. And then it became the response to Black Lives Matter. And he wanted to mobilize the active duty military to keep order in the streets. The Secretary right. of Defense said to the governors on a call with the president, don't worry, governors, we will dominate the battle space that is American cities. Right. Imagine that. The president actually deployed the, the 82nd Airborne Division to Maryland and Virginia, and they were uniformed in combat gear with fixed bayonets on automatic weapons about to be sent into Washington. And that's the day that they cleared Lafayette Park with flashbangs and tear gas and other things so the president could wave a Bible upside down. Right. But, but it is that invention of a fake crisis that requires an armed response Right. that is one of the plays in the playbook that is these 12 forms of communication. Let's go and talk about these 12 forms because I want to make sure that we go through all of them because I think if you're listening here and you get riled up by what our president says and it kind of gets you all angry and you kind of think he's right or if you get really angry because you think he's wrong, let's analyze what he's actually doing so we can become aware of it and then know how to respond. So the first one, you've, you've got the uh, the lone wolf whistle playbook. <laughs> That's what you call it. It's yeah. 12 warning signs that rhetoric may re- provoke violence. Let's talk about the first one is dehumanize. Let's talk about that one. So one of the things we find in the patterns of speech that put people at risk is when a leader who is charismatic and has a following systematically dehumanizes a group of people. And and there are some profound consequences of that dehumanization. The first is it lessens a society's capacity for empathy. And the second is it normalizes things that previously would not only be unacceptable, but unimaginable. So what does dehumanizing sound like? It is calling people animals, calling people monsters, calling people vermin, saying that their very presence among us is an infestation. Now, the president has been using that kind of language across many different groups of people, but he particularly did it with respect to Latin American migrants seeking legal asylum into the United States. And he would chant at rallies, they're animals, they're animals. Nancy Pelosi tells me to stop calling them animals, but she's wrong. They are animals. Right. Now, and then he just called, he called, um, you know, Kamala, he called her a monster. monster. You know, this is a a woman who in California was the attorney general. She's an attorney. She's a brilliant woman. And whether you like her politics or not, she's not a monster. And, and here is the consequence of that kind of dehumanization. Starting in 2017, formalized in 2018, the public policy of the United States was based on the dehumanization of Latin American migrants. Mm. So he called them animals. What do you do with animals? You put them in cages. Right. And then the baby animals, he doesn't care about the baby animals, right? You separate the baby animals from the parents. Right. And and we had more than 5,000, 
thousand children, including infants who were breastfeeding, forcibly removed from their parents without any mechanism to even keep track of which kid went with which parent. They still and don't know what there's like over five hundred. Yeah, five hundred and forty-five children. Right, where they can't account for where the parents are, and that's because many of the parents have been sent back to the countries they came from. But but even worse. We now have accounts of forced sterilization of some of the migrant women in custody. Now, now, that's what you do to animals. It's not what you do to human beings. And, and, And this was not only rogue people taking matters in their own hands. The policy was announced by the attorney general and enforced by the secretaries of Homeland Security and Health and Human Services. I happen to believe you're the attorney, but I happen to believe that that constitutes a crime against humanity. Yes. And 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 it was not only provoked, but inspired and encouraged and cheered on by the president. So that's dehumanization. That's the first form right. of language that predictably puts groups at risk. Yeah. And then the second. Yeah. The, the demonize. demonize. Right. And that's what the president did with the governor of Michigan. She, he says that Nancy Pelosi is in favor of human trafficking. Can you imagine? Yeah, how he, he jumps he to that. that yeah. Barack Obama, when he was president, was illegitimate because he's secretly not born in the United States. He is Kenyan and Muslim. Right. He says that Muslims want to destroy America and force a new new religion on us and and that demonization and delegitimization of rivals or groups or critics leads to acts of violence against them when he tells four congresswomen of color to go back to where they came from right right one of whom is a refugee from Somalia, has right. been in this country since she was a young child, right. and the other three of whom were born in the United States. Right. What signal is that? And well, they got record numbers of death threats against them. Yes. But it, but it isn't only them. My graduate students at NYU and Columbia, who were from all over the world, started getting assaulted and spit upon and shouted at, go back to where you came from, in the immediate aftermath of the president saying that about the women of color who are members of Congress. Well, also what he did with, you know, demonizing the Chinese for COVID-19, and then all the Asians now, my my paralegal, who I adore like a daughter, she is Vietnamese, and she and her friends were demonized and she's not even Chinese. She's Vietnamese descent. And so that's what he's done. And that has demonized. There's been attacks on Asian people across this country. The FBI has documented a surge of hate crimes against people perceived to be Asian or Asian American. Right. And, and it began with the president calling it the China virus, the Chinese virus, or right. even more offensive, Kung flu. Right. But what we saw e- even in March when all of this started, when the president started pounding a China virus, China virus, China virus, a nine-year-old boy in a retail store in Texas was slashed across the face with a sharp knife by mm. a woman. Mm. And when, her, when his father came to his rescue, the woman slashed the father across the face. The kid mm. needed uh, 11 stitches, the father 14 stitches, 
they were from Myanmar, mm. uh, formerly known as Burma. Yes. And when the police arrested the woman who had slashed them and asked, why did you do that? She said, I was protecting the United States from the China virus. Oh, my God. Several weeks later, a Chinese-American woman, an American of Chinese descent, was walking to her apartment in Brooklyn. And as she walked up the steps of her apartment, a neighbor who had been waiting for her threw acid in her face Mm. and screamed at her to stop transmitting the China virus. Right. That is, that is two of the plays in the playbook. The first is the demonization, and the second is the assertion that simply because someone is a member of a group, they are carrying disease. Right. That's one of the plays in the playbook. Right. Then the next one, and, and you know, when we think back to Hitler, what he did also to demonize the Jews, people say, oh, that would never happen here. Well, you know, they get mad when we talk about that, but it is the same playbook. All 12 of these forms of language were employed both by Hitler and the Nazis, and also 10 of the 12 by the Rwandan Hutu in the massacre over 100 days of 800,000 Tutsi Rwandans in the 1990s, Mm. that, that these 12 forms of language are the consistent common element of the, the the dynamics that lead to acts of mass violence. Right. Now the next the one is scape yeah, scapegoat. Is is scapegoating and that is blaming some group for the troubles here. So so the president for example says thousands of Americans have been brutally killed by those illegally entering our country and thousands more lives will be lost if we don't act right now to right. prevent immigration. He says our southern border is a pipeline for illegal drugs. Ninety percent of illegal drugs flood across our southern border. He says Mexicans are taking our jobs, are taking our manufacturing, they're taking your money. They're killing us. Right. That is the scapegoating of others for our problems here. Right. The fourth I've already mentioned, and that is... Well, I was just going to say that we should not forget that the Democrats are the scapegoat as Mm -hmm. well. You know, just that that within our own country, that that, um, anyone who does not agree, or and even the Republicans who have now been the the Lincoln, you know, project, right. (laughs) right, that anyone who is not on, you know a loyal follower of this guy, who <laughs> this dictator, I mean, is suddenly considered, you know, a, uh, you know, someone who, you know, like they've done with the Chinese or they've done with anyone who is, uh, you know, not in, uh, in agreement with him. So they're scapegoats. And, yeah, and, and you know. They're responsible for our problem. Yeah. Right? And everybody, I have had friends of mine from my church that say, Oh, well, COVID's going to go away as soon as the Democrats, um, you know, lose this election. It's like, what? This is, a, and I, I had to say, this is an international, this is a global pandemic. But again, it's the Democrats that he has demonized. Yeah. And the, the fourth form yep. is to claim that someone represents a public health threat. That's the China virus problem. Right, right. The fifth is claiming that some group or some p- political rival or, or some other uh, critic is a threat to public safety and civic order. So, for example, 
when he called for a total and complete ban on Muslims entering the United States. Right. And that, and that is about a quarter of the world's population. Right. He was asked, really, every Muslim? And he, and he cited a phony poll, and he said 25% of Muslims in the United States want to have jihad against the United States, which is absurd. Right. He comes up with uh, all these numbers and things right. that are that he makes up. Yeah. But but then when he was challenged by George Stephanopoulos and by Jake Tapper in interviews on this, he said, But George, if we don't prevent all Muslims from entering the United States, they're gonna be more World Trade Centers. I promise you that. Oh God. So so what happens is a surge of hate crimes against Muslims takes place. Mm-hmm. The next is attributing a violent motive to a group or to a critic. And so he says there's great hatred towards American by large towards Americans by large segments of the Muslim population. He says that the migrants in what he called the caravan are coming to invade this country and assault Americans. He says that the Mexican government is forcing their most unwanted people into the United States to disrupt the United States and civic order. This attribution of violent motive is one of the forms of the playbook. And how about the Black, Life, Black Lives Matter as well, right? And, and, and also the attribution of something he calls Antifa, which is an ideology, but he describes it as if it's an organized terror group. Right. And, and, and that's also an attribution of violent motive. The next we've talked about, and that is the severely exaggerated risk that requires an armed response. Right. So, so let's go back to what he called the caravan. He says that the caravan were animals, they were dangerous, they were disease-ridden, they were coming to take over the United States, and he, they were funded by mysterious Jewish banking sources like George Soros. A week before the 2018 midterm, he said that he was mobilizing the military to stop the caravan at the border. And how you know that he was insincere is that the caravan was still 2,000 miles away from the United States. It was on its way to San Diego. He mobilized the military and sent them to Killeen, Texas, which is 1,500 miles from where the migrants were heading. And then the following week, he lost the midterms, and he stopped talking about the caravan. So, So that's how you know that that was an insincere invented crisis. It's exactly what he did. In June, when he tried to mobilize the active duty military to keep order in the streets, that's what he did in Portland, is that invention of an existential crisis that requires an armed response is the seventh play in the playbook. Yeah, and he did that when he wanted to walk down to hold up the Bible and people were protesting peacefully, and he brought in the military to, to... Gas them. I don't know if it was tear gas. They said it was was something like that. It was pepper spray. It was flashbang grenades. It was rubber bullets. And it was physical assault with clubs and fists. Right. Right. 
just amazing. I remember what it's like to get hit by tear gas because I was at the University of Wisconsin in Madison in uh, 1968. (laughs) And here I was, I got hit with tear gas on my way to a Portuguese exam. So so I know how painful that can be and how I was really upset about that. And that kind of stuff went on. Well, let's go on to the sinister identities. That's number eight. So the the eighth play is attributing a vague or sinister identity to a people to a group of people or to members of a group. So so he says for example about Mexicans trying to come into the country. He says Mexico is sending us not the right people. It's coming from more than Mexico. It's coming from all over South and Latin America. Right. right. It's also coming from the Middle East. And he's using these labels to to scare people and say, ooh, there's something wrong with people from the Middle East, or there's something wrong with people from South America. Well, he, he did that the- even with when he called Hillary crooked Hillary, you know, and and he did that. He did, you know, he, he gave her a sinister identity. And he's now done tried to do that with Biden to say that he's a socialist or a communist. The radical left. Yes, the worst elements of the radical left. That's a sinister idea. By the way, I'm a liberal. I have been my whole life. I've never met the radical left. I don't know what they're talking about. I know, yeah. And, and of course, the the rap on Biden during the primaries is that he was too moderate, too centrist. Right. And, you know, on the other side, you had Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders farther to the left. Right. But, But the president does this both conflation, which is another play in the playbook, but also this wildly exaggerated, sinister-sounding name yeah, like yeah. socialist, communist, right. uh, uh, radical left. Right, right. The, the ninth <laughs> is saying that some members of a group or some rival or critic are part of some conspiracy. Oh, boy, he's so, done a lot of that conspiracy a theory. Lot of, well, first of all, the, the whole uh, uh, Mueller investigation, which he said was a witch hunt, right. that's a conspiracy. Right. Uh, he called the caravan being funded by mysterious sources, uh, and, and he would stand at rallies and, and pretend to be doling out money. And he said, you know how the caravan started, right? Who do you think is responsible for that? And somebody would shout, Soros, and they'd start to chant. Right. He, he says yeah, he's into that, chanting. <laughs> he, he says the Democratic Party has gone so far to the left that it's become a radical resistance. Have you ever read their signs? Resist. You know who paid for that? Soros. Right. That's... So, so that conspiracy plays right into uh, a lot of his base who are white supremacists who believe that they are the victims of a conspiracy to displace them. Yeah. So we got to get through a couple more because we only have we like have three minutes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, good, good, so, good. So the 10th is to discredit the accuracy of information. So what began with fake news became right. enemy of the people. And then he said that the New York Times was actively committing treason by writing right. stories that were critical of him. And what happened? We have seen the highest incidence of violence against journalists that we've seen in decades. Yes. In in Minneapolis, Ari, uh, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Ali Velshi of MSNBC was reporting live on the air, and he was shot with rubber bullets, and he turned to the police who had shot him and said, hey, we're the media, and they said, we know. Yeah, yeah. The 11th 
is conflation, conflation of the victims with the perpetrators. So he said that Syrian refugees were a secret ISIS army invading the United mm. States. Mm. And, and the 12th is the juxtaposition of a menacing image with an individual's identity. So, for example, he had a picture of Hillary during the campaign on a bag of money with Jewish stars on it. Right, he right. Juxtapose a, an image of Ilan Omar, the Muslim congresswoman of color who wears a hijab, against the World Trade Center on fire and collapsing. That led to a surge of hate crimes uh, against Muslims and death threats against Congresswoman Omar. And there were pictures of politicians that he had altered, like Biden, to make him look yes. older. So, yes. yeah, I mean, this is this is such dirty politics. I, I can't even take it. But. But, but but the patterns are recognizable. And my purpose in writing the book is to help civic leaders, engaged citizens, public officials, to be able to recognize the patterns and call out the consequences of this kind of language and to let leaders know that they will be held accountable for the consequences of this language. Right. And then we all have to read your other book on, on leadership <laughs> and ethics. And, and, and that's for the ones who actually care and want to help people and help society move forward. Right. But, but I found myself called to write this book because we were at risk of this getting really bad. I know. And I wish we had a couple hours more to talk, but I am so glad that we got you on before the election tomorrow. And I'm just hoping that people will see this so that we will be able to deal with these kind of leaders or dictators in the future. So I want to thank you again. Just give your website and it's time to go. It is wordsonfire.net. Thank you so much. And thank you, Elio, Fred, Garcia. Wonderful work. Thank you so much. We'll have you back again. Bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 830 and visit our website at conflicthealing.com. Thanks. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.